As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came out so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me, while it is, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As, I, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for creating people like my daddy, that every week stand in front of people and tell them the truth, the truth about you, the truth about the scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm not going to lie, that was pretty awesome. (laughs) Those of you that know me well, in fact, those of you that know me hardly at all, probably know that um, I am a lover of food. Uh, Good food, good drink, that is my love language. I am blessed to be married to uh, not only an incredible cook, but someone that also loves, shares my passion for food. You could look at our entertainment budget and see that literally almost every penny we spend is on uh, groceries, restaurants, babysitters so we can go to restaurants. <clears throat> it, it is uh, truly the definition of uh, love and passion in our home. As such, a few days ago, I received incredible news. And that news was that one of my favorite chefs, Sean Brock, is opening a 10,000 square foot restaurant right here in East Nashville. Like to me, that's, that's like the announcement that the Super Bowl is gonna be in your backyard every single week. This is, it couldn't get much better. For those that guys that, that don't really understand space and size, 10,000 square feet is gigantic. He's already announced the plans of what he wants to do. He wants to focus on Southern cuisine, specifically Appalachian cuisine. The bottom floor is going to be this amazing restaurant and dining area and open kitchen. The top floor is going to be a tasting room. I mean, my mouth just kind of salivates as I even talk about it. Sean Brock, what he wants to do with restaurants like this is make sure that he tells the story of Southern cuisine, specifically in the Appalachian Mountains where he grew up, because he recognizes that those culinary traditions are dying. As a matter of fact, he even recognizes that there's some specific produce, fruits and vegetables that grew in specific regions that are dying out. As farming is becoming more and more commercial, as the American tastes are changing and we want things cheaper, not better, and because of that, some of these locally grown produces are nearly extinct. So with his restaurant, he's starting an heirloom seed bank. 
so that he can maintain those things. As a matter of fact, a part of this 10,000 square feet is going to include a recording studio. How natural is that, right? Um, But in this studio, he is going to produce a podcast where he's going to be telling these stories, where he's going to be sharing these traditions and these recipes. The podcast is going to be called Before It's Too Late. Because Sean Brock recognizes that there's a window. There's a window to save these traditions. There's a window to save these foods. There's a window to save these stories. And once that window closes, it's gone forever. This idea that there is a limited window is something so many in the world recognize, but it's something that we as followers of Christ have become all too comfortable in ignoring. I think the reason for that is... A reaction to maybe some blowback from generations of altar calls and invitations that were incredibly emotional, bordering on manipulative. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. That for a long time, We got really good at pushing people's buttons to make them walk down these aisles. And once we started to realize that, we ran from it. And now, many in the modern church, myself included, have allowed that pendulum to swing so far in the other direction that we have created a world where there is a lack of urgency, a lack of intentionality. We've created a world where, you know what? God is love and my neighbors will figure that out eventually, right? There's going to be time. Because we've forgotten. We find ourselves today in the fourth and last week of this vision series that we wanted to kick off 2019 with. In the first week, we looked at Romans chapter 15 and the idea that all of us have a call, both as a congregation, as this local expression of the body of Christ as well as individuals. Two weeks ago, we jumped back into Exodus chapter 35, the story of the building of the tabernacle. Allowed that story to illustrate how each of us, individually gifted, with unique stories and experiences and passions, if we are willing If we are willing to serve, we will be used by God. 
Last week, we looked at Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, as Paul was pouring into his protege. We looked at our call to both be leaders and be disciples, as well as to grow a new generation of leaders and disciples. This entire series culminates this week in a call to action. Because here's the uncomfortable thing. A calling, a willingness to serve, a desire to grow new leaders and new disciples, all of it amounts to very little. When we lack a sense of urgency, when we fail to recognize there is a window. Maybe it closes today, maybe in 10,000 years. But there is a window. This morning, we turn to the Gospel of John to remind us of that urgency. Now, I remember when I was in middle school and I was being taught how to write an essay. And they drew this triangle that was very broad at the top and narrow at the bottom. And they said, when you introduce an essay... You start broad and you go narrow, right? So I would usually start with some big grand sentence, you know, about all the people in the world. And the very next sentence would be about the individual I wanted to write about. That was my very steep triangle. I'm going to kind of use that same formula today. Jesus Christ is the protagonist, the central character and the focus of every single verse in this book. It all points to him. Now, those of you that aren't familiar with the scriptures, if you're not familiar with the Bible, within this book, about two-thirds of the way through, there are four books that we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four gospels focus on the life and ministry of Jesus as he was here on this planet. Those four gospels tell us his story. We get to see his inevitable march towards the cross. We get to see how everything points and leads up to his glorious resurrection. We also get to see how Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, interacted with the world, interacted with real people. And we get to see how those real people, dynamic and experience and personality, interacted with him. Here in chapter 9, we find Jesus deep into his ministry. He has been a public figure for some time. He has performed public miracles. He's given sermons. He's taught in parables. He has his kind of 12 guys around him that are his closest followers, his disciples that he's pouring into. But even beyond them, almost everywhere he went by this point, there was a crowd because he had gained a reputation. 
He was a very controversial figure. There were those saying that this was the Messiah, the chosen one that was prophesied in the Old Testament, the one that God was going to send to save his people. There were those saying, "Uh uh-uh, no chance. He doesn't look anything like we thought he would look. He can't be the real Messiah. He's a blasphemer. As a matter of fact, in the verses immediately preceding chapter 9, we see Jesus in one of his many confrontations with the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. They again had accused him of blasphemy. In the last verse of chapter 8, we see these religious leaders literally pick up rocks prepared to murder him. And he just walks away. As he walks away, he passes by this man on the road, blind from birth, begging for whatever he can get, money, food. As he and his followers see this man, his, his disciples, their first instinct is to try to figure out what happened. They see suffering, what went wrong. Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Rabbi, explain this to us. It's in that moment that Jesus reminds his followers and anyone in the crowd that may be listening of the urgency. It's in that moment that he says, and this is the Hannah paraphrase, it doesn't matter. But this man is suffering. And there's limited time. We have to do the work. We have to do the work of the one who sent me. Because I'm not going to be here forever. Jesus then spits on the ground and makes mud. As one does. And then obviously, the next obvious step to that would be picking up the mud and rubbing it on this dude's eyes. And he tells the guy, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Well, the guy rolls down there, he bathes, he gets the spit mud off of his face, and he can see. In this story... We see the power and the authority and the compassion and the urgency of Jesus and his mission and his message. There there are lots of little things that, that we in 2019 probably wouldn't pick up on, but those that were witnessing what happened certainly would have. Even, even things like the awkwardness of of spitting on the ground and and making mud and rubbing it on the guy's face, people would have recognized Genesis 2, the creation of man from the mud and the dust of the earth, pointing to this man as the creator, pointing to this man as the Messiah. This is also the first story we have in scripture of of someone blind from birth receiving sight 
That was a big deal because it was fulfilling specific prophecies. Isaiah 35, Psalm 146, both talking about those blind receiving sight. This would not have been lost on the observers of the day. This story gives us not only an opportunity to see the power and authority, the compassion and the urgency of Jesus Christ, to see these characteristics of God in the flesh, but it gives us an opportunity to explore the human reaction to those things. There are various characters throughout the gospels, throughout the scriptures that we all identify with. Very real people with very real reactions to very real situations. And in this story, I see three characters that at various points in my life, I can absolutely identify with. First, we've got the disciples. These 12 men, these followers of Jesus. You know, these were just dudes, just normal Dudes. There was not anything exceptional or extraordinary about them. They came from all walks of life. There were fishermen and there were accountants and tax collectors and at least one religious zealot, like militant Jew that were a part of this group. This group checks off all of the boxes of this sermon series we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Um, they were called. In fact, we've got stories of their actual, literal, tangible, audible call throughout the scriptures. You know, Jesus standing on the shores of Galilee, looking at the fishermen in the boat. Leave your nets behind. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Like actual calls. They were called. They were willing to serve as evidenced by the fact that they dropped those nets. They left their family. They left their careers. They left their businesses and they followed him. They were leaders. Jesus had poured into them for years, poured his life into these guys. We see throughout the book of Acts, the story of of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church in the years immediately following Jesus' time here and throughout the rest of the New Testament that, that these men were not only leaders, but they created leaders. They grew new leaders. In fact, it was through these men that that God changed the world. They check off all of the boxes. Yet at this point in John chapter 9, they had already spent years with Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had heard the sermons and the parables. Jesus had, had eaten with them and slept with them and walked with them, yet they still just couldn't quite get it. Because as they walk and they see this man suffering on the side of the road, what was their first instinct? They saw this blind beggar as a theological riddle to be solved. They saw this man suffering and their first reaction was, well, let's figure out what went wrong. Did he sin? Is it some sort of generational sin thing where his parents sinned and it's kind of caused his affliction? Jesus, what's the problem? 
like Job's friends, in that classic Old Testament tale of suffering, the disciples wanted a reason. And if they weren't given one, they would make one up on their own. They wanted an explanation for suffering. We've all been there, haven't we? Jesus, I love you. I give my life to you. I will follow you. But just tell me one thing. What's the story with cancer? I really don't feel like my dad deserved that. And if you could just give me a reason, it's going to make this a lot easier. Or we see our friends that are suffering and, and oftentimes the thought is, okay, well, if, if something ha- has gone wrong, if there's an explanation for this, then, then I could just tell them, hey, dude, just stop doing that thing and then everything's going to be fine. We get so caught up in these doctrinal and theological debates that we become blind to the suffering that's right in front of us. My wife's favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, addresses this exact scenario when he writes, it is ours not to speculate but to perform acts of mercy and love according to the tenor of the gospel. Let us then be less inquisitive and more practical, less for cracking doctrinal nuts and more for bringing forth the bread of life to the starving multitudes. Hear me say this this morning. I am not advocating for ignoring theological and doctrinal questions. I'm not saying we shouldn't be seeking the scriptures for wisdom. I'm not saying we shouldn't thirst for answers. What I am saying is when those things take precedent and make us blind to the suffering that's in front of us, We are ignoring the behavior that Christ has modeled for us. The second character I see in this story is the collective character of of this man's friends, the townspeople, the religious leaders of the day that were in the area. They would have passed this guy on the street every day of his life. Maybe they give him a coin, maybe they don't, but they see him so often, they see his suffering every day to the point that they become blind to it, to the point that they don't even recognize him anymore. He just kind of fades into the fabric of the community. When there is miraculous transformation in this beggar's life, 
They don't understand it. They can't believe it. They refuse to see it. To the point that they come up with every single excuse in the book. If you go through the rest of chapter 9, they, they start with, well, this must be a case of mistaken identity. Verses 8 and 9. You know, there's this big debate amongst the town people. Because remember, they, they've started just passing by this guy to where they don't even recognize him anymore. And, and in verse 8, they're like, wait a second, wait a second. He looks kind of like that dude that's blind. But he's not blind, so he must not be that guy. He's got to be somebody else, right? The, all the while, the guy's standing there. is like, um, I'm the dude. Like, I'm the guy. I've been sitting. I was over there, and I was blind. And now I'm standing here, and now I can see. Well, next thing you know, they take him and they're like, okay, well, this can't be real. So they parade him in front of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and like, hey, guys, he says that, that he's the guy that was blind and Jesus came and now he can see and that can't be the case. So somebody give us an explanation. After that, in verses 18 and 19, they, they take the guy back to his house and talk to his parents. Like, all right, mom and dad. So your boy is telling tall tales. He's saying he was blind from birth and now he can see and that can't be the case. So could you give us the real story? The parents are like, he is a grown man. Take this up with him. Got nothing to do with us. Finally, they circle back around in verses 26 and 27 to this kind of, this kind of mistaken identity, misunderstanding idea. And they sit him down and they're like, okay, okay. You said that you were the blind guy and then you met Jesus and now you can see. And we recognize that can't be the case. So we must have misheard you. Tell us the story again. What did we get wrong? You see, they are, they're so caught up in this box they have created for themselves. This picture in their mind of the way things are supposed to be, that they have become blind to the work of a living Savior that is right in front of them. And the Pharisees so caught up in legalism that they can't see God's miracle right in front of them. The Pharisees say, well, it can't be Jesus because Jesus is a sinner. He had the gall to heal somebody on the Sabbath. That's work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Therefore, sinner, if he's a sinner, he can't be from God. Therefore, this can't be real. So caught up in the picture of what the Messiah was supposed to look like, a great conqueror. A king coming to save their people. That they were blind to the work of the living Savior right in front of them. Finally, we see the blind man himself. Blind from birth. With no explanation as to why, as to what happened, no doubt having asked a thousand times, why me? I didn't deserve this. I didn't do anything for this. 
seems to be from this story that by this point in his life, he has almost given up ever finding any sort of explanation. You know, he has this rabbi in front of him. He can no doubt sense the crowd around him. He can hear the conversation happening. Jesus, tell us, what happened to this man? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus is like, no, it's not about that. We don't see him raise his hand. Um, okay, well, can you tell me what it is about? He seems to have lost any hope and gone into pure survival mode. Suffering alone. doing whatever it takes to get through the next day. And then this rabbi turns from the people that he was talking to and begins to address him and he makes the mud in the ground and he wipes it on his face. And in verse seven, he says, now go. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And what does the guy do? He goes. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't wonder why. He doesn't ask what's going to happen. And you may be thinking, well, of course he went. He had spit mud on his face. I would go too. Like step one, when somebody rubs spit and dirt on your face is wash it off. Here's the fun thing about the scriptures. They were real stories that happened in real places to real people. And you can go to those places. We know where they were when this happened as Jesus exited the temple. We know where the pool of Siloam was and is today. You can go see it. They're about a half a mile apart through winding streets, up and down stairs, past other places where this man could have washed, all the way down a winding path to the bottom of a hill. Hard enough journey for anyone more difficult when you're blind, probably more difficult when you're blind with mud all over your face. But this man felt the power of the words of this person in front of him, this rabbi, this teacher, this savior, and he was compelled to go. He heard the man say there is limited time And no doubt recognized, I, I may not have another chance like this. And he got up and he walked. His response to this command reflects the same urgency as Jesus' ministry itself. He knew there was a window. He knew it might close.
There is a time for every person. This man recognized that it was his time. The spirit of God will not wrestle with man forever. In the other three gospels, we're told the story of the rich young ruler. This young man that had been given every advantage in life, had lived a very good, a very pure life. He comes to Jesus, frankly to brag about how good and pure his life was. And Jesus says, awesome. Just one other thing. Leave all that behind and follow me. Recognize that's the exact same call that every other disciple got as Jesus is standing on the shores of Galilee. This man had that chance, he had that call, and he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't, he just couldn't get there. Do you know what Jesus did? He didn't chase after him. He didn't beg. He let him go. That young man never shows up in the scriptures again. We do not know what happened to him. What we do know is Jesus respected his decision and he will respect ours. As you read through the rest of chapter 9, as you see the story of this blind man, what you will see is he didn't have all the answers. He didn't get it. He didn't know how it worked. Time and time again, he was interrogated by his friends and the townspeople and the religious leaders. And time and time again, his answer was, I I don't know. I don't know. But I do know one thing. I was blind and I met Jesus and now I can see. He couldn't explain how it worked, but he couldn't deny the transformation that was in his life. He was unwavering in his testimony, despite mounting pressures, despite inevitable consequences. At the end of chapter 9, what we see as he stands in front of the religious leaders and his friends, and he says, guys, I don't care what you say. I can't deny what Jesus did for me. They end up kicking him out of town. The only place he's ever known. But he could not turn his back on what Jesus did for him. So often, our greatest evangelists are brand new believers. Because they so vividly recall what they have been saved from. How many of us that grew up in pews just like these have forgotten? Who do you identify with in the story of Jesus and the blind man and the pool of Siloam? Do you recognize yourself in the disciples caught up in these endless theological debates so much so that you're blind to the suffering in front of you?
Maybe you can recognize yourself in the townspeople and in the religious leaders. So tied to legalism, so tied to this picture of what you think it should be, that you can no longer see the movement of a living Savior right in front of you. I would submit that all of us in this room, no matter what you believe, no matter where you are in your faith journey, can see yourself at some point in this story in that blind man. Maybe you identify with him at the beginning of chapter nine. Suffering, broken, confused, alone, no explanation and no hope. Hanging on by a very thin thread, whatever it takes to get through these next 24 hours. If you sit in this room this morning and you self-identify as a follower of Christ, Your story is that man's story. Our experiences vary as widely as the East is from the West. But those of us that have met Jesus have the same testimony. I once was blind and now I see. You may not have all the answers. You may not be able to explain why. But you cannot deny the transformation that has happened in your life. If that is not yet your story this morning. If you find yourself in a season of life where you sit and wait alone without answers, suffering without hope, today is that day. Now is that time. I can't give you all of the answers, although I continue in my pursuit. What I can tell you is that I was once blind and then I met Jesus and now I see. And if you want, I can introduce you to that man. Please don't leave here today without talking to someone. Would y'all pray with me? Lord, never let me forget the greatest story of my life that I once was blind and now I see. Though we may not have all the answers, keep our eyes firmly fixed on you. It is in your son's and our Savior's name that we pray.
Amen.